Bible reading comes from Joshua chapter 20. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge, as I instructed you through Moses, so that anyone who kills a person accidentally and unintentionally may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. When they flee to one of these cities, they are to stand in the entrance of the city gate and state their case before the elders of that city. Then the elders are to admit the fugitive into their city and provide a place to live among them. If the avenger of blood comes in pursuit, the elders must not surrender the fugitive, because the fugitive killed their neighbour unintentionally and without malice aforethought. They are to stay in that city until they have stood trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest who is serving at that time. Then they may go back to their own home in the town from which they fled. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee, in the hill country of Naphtali, Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. East of the Jordan, on the other side from Jericho, they designated Bezer in the wilderness on the plateau in the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth in Gilead in the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan in the tribe of Manasseh. Any of the Israelites or any foreigner residing among them who killed someone accidentally could flee to these designated cities and not be killed by the avenger of blood prior to standing trial before the assembly. Well, hello everybody. Good to see you. My name is Paul, if I haven't met you before. Um, nice to be here with you. Um, it's my privilege now to be able to share a bit from God's Word. And to our ears, what a strange reading it was. I mean, I totally understand if you started to vague out um, as we had a fairly detailed explanation about the setup of a, a legal requirement of, of setting up special towns in an ancient civilization. So the question is, what's it got to do with us today here in Sydney? Well, it has a lot to do with us, more than what you may imagine. But first let's ask God that he would help us to understand that part of his word so we can obey it and be his people. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask today that you would help us to be wise, to take heed of your word, and to serve you in wholehearted obedience. Help us today, Lord, to understand your character on display in these verses and to celebrate your goodness and to take refuge in your mercy. Well, it was a dark night as we made our way through the streets of Kazan, a provincial city in Russia. We lined up with a number of cars to turn across the intersection and into a side road. About three of us all went around together and there we were immediately greeted by a policeman, pulling us all over. I stepped out of the car to be told that I'd be, had made an illegal turn. Now I tried to explain, in my very broken Russian, um, that it had been perfectly fine to turn at that intersection for years prior. Well, due to recent roadworks, conditions had changed, apparently. 
I said, well, where was the signage to, say, to explain all that? He goes, well, the signs were there. You must have ignored them. Okay. Come and sit in the police car, he said, while I check all your documentation. Now, checking our legal documentation in Russia was complicated at the best of times. But in the dark, in the passenger seat of the police car, I didn't have my hopes up. We weren't going to get far. There was no way this policeman had ever seen an Australian driver's licence before, nor was he going to try to use my official printed translation to fit in with his ticketing system. What are we going to do with you, Mr Tate? He said. Uh, right out of fine, I presume, I said in reply. Oh, it's a very big fine. Well, uh, yeah, that's a pity, but as you said, I've made an illegal turn and um, so it's probably best we write out the fine. Silence. As we both stared out into the darkness through the windscreen. So you're from Australia, he said. Um, it's going to be complicated trying to write out this ticket. What are we going to do with you? This is a repeated question. Uh, write the fine, I said. <laughs> it's a very big fine. Okay, okay. Well, how much is it going to be? $50. Okay, that's a fair bit of money in that place and time. Can you just write the fine, I urged. Silence. As we both began the Mexican standoff looking out the windscreen. Now, meanwhile, his partner was out in the street pulling up other cars. Every so often he would drop in his takings onto the dashboard of the car. $5 note, $10 note, packets of cigarettes. Inside the car, the standoff continued. What are we going to do with you? He said. My response, uh, write the fine. <laughs> At which point he turns over his notepad and in silence writes down, $30. I said, what's this? A discount. <laughs> don't you have any cash, he says. I said, no, I don't have any cash on me. Now just please write the fine. I uh, just go. And then once he threw his, my license and doc, my translation into my lap, I got up and off I went. Well, what does all that signal? What does that all that signal to you as you hear that story? Well, it's okay to cheat. It's okay to cheat if you can get away with it. What hope does a society have when those appointed to serve and protect use their position to exploit and to steal? What hope does a society have when those who are supposed to make and uphold the rules blatantly break the rules for selfish gain. Now we might shake our heads and at the corruption in other countries around the world, but we find it here too, don't we? Haven't you heard it said, there's one rule for the rich, another for the poor. There's a rule for the famous and another for the unknown. When you think about it, Justice, or the lack of it, can tell you a lot about a nation, about its character, 
about its values. By the time we reach chapter 20 here in Joshua, we see a newly settled nation. The battles have been won, enemies have been defeated, the land has been divided, and the people are at last settling into their new home. But what kind of nation is it going to be? What type of character is it going to display? Well, in these two uh, chapters, chapter 20 and then 21 following, we see God making some final finishing touches. They're going to be vital to ensure the healthy future of this new nation. God wants to make sure that Israel will reflect his values, his character and his priorities. That's why we didn't read it on, but as we went on, if you could have read on into chapter 21, you would hear the, all the commands about the tribe of Levi and what they had to give to them. They were to be given cities, they were to be given pasture land, and it was to be spread all throughout the whole nation of Israel. They were scattered across the whole land because they were not only the priestly tribe who would keep the sacrificial system in place, they also had the role of teaching the word of God throughout the whole land. Israel was to be a nation who would reflect upon and hear God's word preached to them. And so we come back to chapter 20, our interesting reading. And this command to sit up cities of refuge. Now the point here is to notice what kind of values, what kind of character on display. What does God reveal of himself in these verses? His values, his priorities. Well, the first thing to notice, of course, is that justice matters. And we have that idea still deeply rooted in our psyches. We cry out for justice. We cry out when things are not fair. What could be more Aussie than to say we should have a fair go? And in the area of murder, we especially long for justice. We've all seen those scenes outside the courthouse, you know, when the lawyer declares... Today, a conviction of murder has been made and justice has been done. Well, God's law for his people was clear about justice, especially in the area of murder. That's pretty blank. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed, says in Genesis chapter 9. You would have heard these ones, a life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Exodus chapter 21. Now we could, we're not gonna, we don't have time, nor have I got the ability to delve into the rabbit hole of capital punishment inside God's people. But Israel here from these verses is not to be a society where you can murder without consequences. It's not intended that a family should face the seething resentment of no justice done on top of the agony of loss. But what are you to do in a new society, a new rural society with no police force? Well, as you read through that passage, you might have noticed that repeated message of the avenger of blood. The avenger of blood was to have the role of making sure that justice was done, that murder would have its retribution. But it's not hard to imagine, is it, how easy this system could become corrupted? How the idea of blood vengeance can, tie, can turn into the kinds of feud that can plague generations, plague 
whole nations. We see it. Tribal warfare through Africa, throughout the Pacific Islands. What about through Europe as the former Yugoslavia, they lifted the lid off that country and all of a sudden wars broke out from warring feuds between families for generations. Tit-for-tat killings that just kept the nation on its knees. It's also easy for the avenger of blood to become trigger happy. Yes, justice matters, but it must be just. In this chapter we see a God that understands justice, who looks at the heart of the perpetrator, not just at the corpse of the victim. He understands that not all killings are deliberate, and so in his mercy provides for them. You see, each time the avenger of blood is mentioned in this chapter, there's also a mention of someone who has killed a person accidentally. So, for example, in verse 3, if anyone kills a person accidentally and unintentionally, they may flee to the city of refuge to find protection from the avenger of blood. You see, these cities of refuge would be a place provided to allow justice to be done in the case of an accident. God knows that there are times where justice is just a bit more complex than a life for a life. Accidents do happen. The Bible unfolds some of these scenarios. For instance, it says in Deuteronomy, a man may go into the forest with his neighbour to cut wood. And as he swings his axe to fell a tree, the head might fly off and hit his neighbour and kill him. That man may flee to one of the cities of refuge and save his life. Cities of refuge were designed for these kinds of scenarios. And it's not some kind of legal loophole, a way to escape justice. Once in the city, they would have to state their case to the elders and stand trial in the assembly. There may not have been any high-tech forensic science going on, but they had to have more than one witness to back up their story. So you could sum up these verses like this. A man without a murderous heart should not suffer a murderous, a murderous punishment. So again, so a man without a murderous heart should not suffer a murderous punishment. And we know that, don't we? Even in our legal system today, a conviction of murder needs both evidence of a guilty mind and intention, as well as a guilty act. So we can see this system is just, but it also needed to be accessible. And so today we think of ideas of representation and legal aid. But in this case, accessibility was just as simple as making sure there was a fair and even spread of these cities. I wouldn't test you on the geography of that, that, that chapter that was read out early, very hard to follow. But if you map it out, it's actually an even spread. Six cities, three on one side of the Jordan, three on the other side, two to the north, two in the Midlands, two to the south, spread out. Anyone, anywhere in Israel could access one of these cities in less than a day's walk. And lastly, in verse 9, did you notice who this refuge was for? It says, any of the Israelites or any foreigner residing among them who killed somebody accidentally could flee to these designated cities. There was to be no attitude that viewed the foreigner as someone second rate. 
or an easy target for a bribe. Now there was no rule about if you had the right sort of connections and right sort of national ties. There was no rule for the rich and a different one for the poor. So the cities of refuge speak of God's justice. But they also speak of his values. And what comes across loud and clear in this chapter is the value put on human life. And Genesis chapter 9 explains that. Whoever sheds human blood, by human blood shall their blood be shed because in the image of God has God made humanity. A human life is that precious. The cities are set to protect the innocent shedder of blood so that their life themselves cannot be cheaply disposed of. And we see how seriously even the accidental death is taken. These cities were to be a place of refuge but they are also a place of exile. You could flee there but you had to stay there. They had to stay in that city until they had stood trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest who was serving at that time. Then they may go back to the home from which they fled. These cities were both a refuge but also a prison. The reminder is starkly given that human life, life made in God's image, always remains exceedingly sacred. What a contrast that is, isn't it? To places in the world where life seems so cheap. When I, Russia's going to cop a beating tonight in my stories. We lived there for a number of years. One day I was walking up to the uni to teach English. There was a bit of a gathering around the, the front entry to the building. I don't know what was going on, but then as I moved closer, I could see a body lying on the ground. I thought it was someone just drunk, passed out. As I got closer, I realised, no, the body's dead. I don't know what, what had happened at that moment, but then as I walked into the building, I could hear, overhear police talking, saying that the person had jumped, committed suicide from the 15th floor of this uh, uh, high-rise building. I stayed and taught the class uh, that day and offered the, offered the students if they wanted to go, they could go. They said, no, we, we don't want to be so depressed about this event. Why don't we stay and we can distract ourselves? Our class went for almost two hours. After I'd finished up, it was well over two hours before I left the building. When I walked back out, the body was still lying there on the ground. I had to step over it as I walked down the stairs. It was covered in a blanket. Life's cheap in some parts of the world. But not so with God. Human life is incredibly, incredibly valuable. You know, when we, when we mention um, work, health and safety, what do you do? Do you roll your eyes? We know the frustrations of excessive bureaucracy that stopped us from doing the things that we've done safely for the past 20 years. Wouldn't it be great in some countries if there was just one or two basic health and safety rules? Just a small amount of responsibility and care. That would mean that people have some kind of value. Now we can't fully appreciate the value of human life until we unpack that strange idea of having to wait in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. That's all we get stated to us in Joshua. We don't get any, ex any further explanation. But it seems that with the death of the high priest, the prisoner can be released from his exile 
and be allowed to go back home. Now, of course, when we read that today, we can't help but hear about Jesus, our high priest. This idea in him grows to full blue. Am I rightfully accused of wrongdoing? Have I been caught up in one of life's accidental tragedies? We'll come to the cross as your place of refuge and find the high priest who has died for you, who will bring you, from, who will bring you home from your exile from God. The cross is the ultimate display of how much value God puts on human life, on my life, on your life. For God so loved you that he gave his only son. So what kind of nation were Israel to be? One that displayed godly justice, one that reflected God's values. And they could do all this out of joy because God was faithful. In the final two verses of chapter 21, we read this. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors and they took possession of it and they settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. Now, you needn't be a cynic to have had doubts if God would have followed through on his promises. I mean, think back to when that original promise was made to Abraham, a childless old man. The promises needed to survive years of slavery in Egypt. They had to survive wilderness wanderings. They had to survive the failures of God's people. And now God says, not one of my promises has failed. There's been an unstoppability to God's faithfulness to his word. But we struggle to handle that, don't we? Because we're short on experience of people who can be trusted. We're so familiar with the over-promise and the under-deliver, the half-baked solution. But here is a God who can be relied on. And the promise to Abraham doesn't actually stop at John Joshua chapter 21. I mean, today we've seen it fulfilled in an even more wonderful extent. The promise of blessing fulfilled in Jesus. And it's in him we can run to refuge. Let's pray. Lord, as we've already confessed today, we've rebelled against you and rightly deserve your justice. But Lord, we thank you for the promise of refuge in your Son at the cross. Lord, please forgive us and change us to reflect your character to those around us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.